had a couple of interactions this week that made me think about what I was going to be preaching on. One of those happened at Walmart. And if you know anything about the people that go to Walmart, then you understand the variety of interactions that you can have at any local Walmart. I, the way I put it is that the world comes together at Walmart. It's an interesting place, is it not? You can see about anything at Walmart. You can get about anything at Walmart. And, and this week I went late one night to Walmart, <clears throat> which is a very interesting experience in and of itself. Even if you don't have anything to buy one time, just go to Walmart late at night, and, and it'll open your eyes to society. But, but anyway, I, I stood in line behind a few people and noticed that the lady that was first in line, who was checking out, was just, say, a little interesting. She was dressed in an interesting kind of way and, and, and just didn't look like she sort of had her life together, if you understand what I mean. And, and I, I, I sort of wondered about her, and then I saw something that, quite honestly, um, was, was difficult to take and honestly very, very convicting. Right in front of me was a couple uh, that uh, was beginning to sort of look at this same lady and mutter a few things and begin to laugh and so on and so forth. And then I, I saw the young man who was the, the gentleman in the couple get out his phone and sort of get to a spot where he could take a picture. Now, there's, there's websites where you can post pictures of people of Walmart. Maybe you've been there before. I don't know. But, but I, I thought, really? That we, we, we have degraded ourselves to such a point that we show no dignity to even a person who maybe can't help their particular situation. But honestly, I was convicted because my first thoughts of her were exactly the same. My first thoughts of her were sort of looking at her and saying, what's up with that? What's wrong with her? Almost laughing in myself. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're uncomfortable with me admitting that, but, but I guarantee you that you have been there and you understand. I had another interaction last night at Cole's in Paducah. And, uh, and a lady walked in uh, as I was checking out uh, and, uh, and walks in and, and uh, just dressed sort of normally except for her T-shirt that she had on that said... It's all about me. And I thought, well, at least somebody's honest enough to admit it. You know, I, at least she's honest. But I, you know, I, I looked at her and I thought, well, she was in her 30s, I, I would think, something fairly close to my own age. I'm thinking, if it was a teenager, you know, I kind of understand that. They're teenagers trying to get attention or whatever, you know. But here's a woman, and, and my, I was, I, my first thought, I was, ju- I was sort of angry and, and thinking, you know, come on. You're 30-something years old, and life is still all about you, and you're willing to broadcast it to everyone. What I find myself living between and living in, maybe you feel the same way, is a tension between two different worlds that I live in. We live in, as Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you live in a heavenly world. And by that I mean, yes, you already have citizenship in heaven, according to the Bible, but you live in this mentality to where God is in charge of your mind and your heart 
And, and you know that Jesus died for the world, that he loves the people that you interact with, and even those people at Walmart and Kohl's that you maybe are sort of taken aback by. We know he loves them. We know that we are in turn to love people as we love Jesus, even people like that. We know we have some responsibility to join Jesus in his mission. So we, we sort of live in this heavenly world. And yet we also have the tension of living here on earth. We're not yet in heaven. We have that heavenly mentality, but we're still human. We don't naturally gravitate toward people who are not like us. The lady in line at Walmart is not someone that I would naturally go up to and strike up a conversation. The person who walked into Kohl's with the shirt that it's all about me, I'm not normally attracted to those kinds of people who would broadcast their selfishness to everyone. Maybe you're different than me, I doubt it, but we're not normally attracted to those kinds of people. We all have natural human responses to those kinds of folks. We, we want to be a part of the Lord's mission. We pray those prayers. We take up an offering to further the kingdom of God so we can impact people. We have vacation Bible school to get young people here in the church so we can impact them. We know we're to be a part of that mission, but what does that mean? Does it mean that we're to hang out only with those who are interesting <laughs> or those who are offending us, maybe like that lady at Coles? Does it mean that we're standing on the street corner with a bullhorn shouting at people? What, what does it mean to have the heavenly mentality and yet live here on earth? I don't know about you, but there's a great tension there for me. I struggle with that. It, it is constant, and if I'm aware of my heavenly citizenship and my, my relationship with Jesus, yet understanding that that needs to be lived out here on earth, that creates some tension. But I honestly believe that most of the tension we feel is probably not with random people we see at Walmart in line. Probably not with a random person who walks in and just passes us up and goes on about their business at Kohl's on a Saturday night in Paducah. I don't think that most of the tension we feel is with complete strangers. Most of the tension is with our everyday interactions with our friends, with family members, those that you work with, or go to school with, those folks that you're familiar with. That's where the tension really comes in. As a Christian, what do I do about those people? What do I do about the way that they live? What do I do with them? I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that gives us some guidance on what do you do with those kinds of people. Not just random strangers, but those in particular that you're close to that you realize are far from the Lord. Mark chapter 2. Now we've been in a series uh, called To Be Continued because it will be to be continued. We're going to get through Mark chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 3 and then pause and we'll come back to this series again later on. We're also calling it that because Mark kind of ends his gospel uh, in chapter 16 with, with an abrupt ending that says there's more to come. There, this, this journey that Jesus has laid out for us will be continued in the lives of individual believers and in the church. So it's sort of to be continued. What we've seen so far is the launching of the ministry of Jesus. We've seen the message of his kingdom. We've seen him call his first disciples, demonstrate his authority. Uh, we've seen that effective ministry, we looked at last week, effective ministry is messy. It's often difficult. And this morning I want to give you both a question and a challenge after we read the scripture. Look at Mark chapter 2 verse 1. 
When he entered Capernaum, after, after, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people, this is talking about Jesus, gathered there, gathered that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the stretcher on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were reasoning like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your stretcher and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up, picked up the stretcher, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Here's the question. Do you truly believe that people need Jesus? Do you truly believe... That people need Jesus. It's obvious that these four men who lowered their friend to Jesus believed that he needed Jesus. We don't have a record of how much exactly they knew that Jesus was going to do for this man, but they knew they had to get their friend to Jesus. If we were to look at a, just a list of basic needs that people have and sort of evaluate what we think most people need, we might conclude that that just some simple list of basic needs are all that people really need to have met. We may even help them get there. You've probably done that in your life. You've helped someone meet a need. Maybe they needed something to eat, or maybe they had a, a financial hardship, or you helped them do something, whatever it was. And, and sometimes we can just conclude that, well, we've, we've helped meet their needs. We may, uh, we may look at some of the physical and emotional and social, even psychological needs that people have, and once they're met, we figure, well, they're, they're taken care of. In some cases, you may conclude that there's nothing you can do or anyone else or anything can do to meet the needs that people seem to have. Maybe you've sort of given up. Or maybe you, you, you say, well, I'll tell you what somebody needs. Just ask me. I'll tell you exactly what they need. They need to get a life. They need to mind their own business. They need to grow up. They need to stop doing whatever it is that's causing their problems. And we say, I'll tell you what they need. Maybe you've tried that in your own family. Yeah, it probably doesn't go very well. But, uh, but what do you truly believe? What do you really believe that people need? What about that lady at Walmart? What does she really need? What about the lady that walked into Kohl's last night? What, what does she need? What about the people that you and I are around every single day? If you're a parent, what about your children? What do they really, really need? What do you truly believe that people need? I think that, that we can see this reflected in our attitudes toward people. As I admitted to you, my attitude toward the lady at Walmart was not good. Not reflecting what she truly needs. It'll be seen in our approach toward people, what we do toward them. It'll be seen in our words about people. What we think they really need will be reflected in our attitudes, our approach, our words. 
I think as believers in Jesus, it's pretty clear that we have to have a different view of what people truly need than just an earthly sort of mentality. We must be, according to Scripture, convinced that the greatest need that people have is a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not convinced of that, I hope to convince you today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that is the greatest need that people have. Surely there are other needs, absolutely physical needs and social needs and mental and psychological and all of those things. But the greatest need, as we see in the Scripture, is that people have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we would probably all agree with that, at least initially, and I probably wouldn't have much trouble convincing each of you that that's true. You say, well, yeah, I, I get that. I understand that people, people need a relationship with Jesus, absolutely. But I wonder, even though we might know that and say that with our lips, do we truly believe it? It's easy to say that, but it's convicting if we consider do we truly believe it. For just a second, evaluate your attitude toward people, your interactions this past week. If you were to be honest with some of the folks in your family, maybe some of your friends, the people you work with, the folks that you're around on a regular basis, or even the random lady at Walmart or Kohl's that you run into, what was your attitude toward them this week? If you say that you truly believe, I absolutely believe that people need Jesus, what was your attitude toward folks this week? What was your approach toward them? What did you say about them? It's a convicting thing to think about. I tell you often that the hardest part of being the preacher is not giving the sermon, but it's getting beaten up by the sermon the whole week before I have to preach it. What are your words about people? Be specific as you think about your week. Consider what you actually lived out this past week. Not what you'd want to say is true in your life, but what actually was true. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you for just a moment as you think, as you evaluate, revealing if you truly believe that people need Jesus. Our answer to that question, do I believe that people need Jesus, is monumental. It will affect, or at least should affect, everything about your relationship with others. It's clear that there are many Christians even, and surveys will tell you this, who are confused about whether people really do need Jesus or not. There's a high percentage of people, even in evangelical churches like ours, that are a little confused as to whether people truly need Jesus in order to receive eternal life. Now, if you were to answer, yes, I do believe that people need Jesus, what do you think they need him for? Maybe you say, well, so they'll act better. They get on my nerves. They need Jesus, so they'll act right and leave me alone. Listen, I've said that before about people. Well, I hope Jesus gets a hold of their heart, and it'll be less of a pain in the neck, you know, just to get off my back. Maybe, maybe you say, so I won't have to deal with their habits anymore. Boy, if Jesus got a hold of their life, then they wouldn't do that, and... Well, that'd be good. I'm glad they'd stop that. Maybe you think people need Jesus so our world as Christians could be a little more comfortable. Maybe you'd feel better about the way the world is going if more people found Jesus. Maybe your children, you say, well, they need Jesus so they grow up and they'll be good people, productive citizens, and they'll hold down a good job and so on. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. If you still got your Bible open, hold it there in Mark chapter 2. 
it's clear that these guys that lowered this man down knew that this man on the stretcher needed Jesus. Jesus shows us what he really needed from Jesus in verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. That's what people need Jesus for. Not so our world can be better. Not so we can be more comfortable in our world. Not so people will stop this or stop that. People need Jesus because they have the deepest need of having their, their sins forgiven and washed away. Because without that, they stand under the judgment of God and His judgment and wrath on sin. And apart from the forgiveness of their sins, they will spend eternity in hell. Now that's a whole lot bigger deal than just being a nice person. That's a whole lot bigger deal than quitting a certain habit. People need Jesus so that they can escape the wrath of God on sin. Well, that may sound a little old and cliche to you, and you say, well, that's not exactly modern teaching. There's nothing more relevant than having sins forgiven so that you can spend eternity with Jesus Christ and begin to experience the benefits of eternal life here and now. Nothing more relevant than that. It's not old school and to be passed on and we move on to something a little more relevant in our time. That's the most relevant teaching that I can give you, is that each and every one of us needs Jesus so that we can have our sins forgiven to be washed clean and given new life that begins here and now and continues for all eternity. People need Jesus because without Him they have no access to God. They cannot receive His grace apart from Jesus Christ. They cannot receive the new life that He offers apart from Him. I, I want to ask you, and this is a little bit different for what we do during our, our sermon time, but I, I want to ask you, if you would, just to bow your head for a second. We're not done yet. Some of you got happy right there for just a second. We're not done yet. But I, I want you to spend a moment just listening to the Holy Spirit. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit even now convicts you to say, I'm not sure that I truly believe people need Jesus. Certainly my attitudes, my actions, my words toward them don't reflect that. I'm not sure that I've really thought that people need Jesus so they can be forgiven. I've thought people need Jesus so they get off my back and stop doing what they're doing. And maybe for just a second, you'd allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and you'd speak back and say, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me for the way that I've gone about this and how I've viewed people. Spend a moment in prayer, maybe confessing to the Lord or just letting Him know you're willing to be changed. We confess our attitudes and our approaches and our words. And we confess, Lord, that in actuality it's often the case that we don't truly believe that people need Jesus. And even if we say it, we don't truly believe sometimes that they need Jesus for forgiveness as their deepest need. So, Lord, we confess it to you. We ask that you would change us. Make us a people and a church that truly believes that people need Jesus, every single person on this planet. And make us a people, Lord, who are willing to do something about it. Amen. The question is, do you truly believe that people need Jesus? Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. 
this week. Hang out between heaven and earth and see what God wants to do with you. See how God can use you. Hang out between heaven and earth and see how God can use you. You think about that for just a second. You recognize that we live between these two worlds, this tension that we live in. We're called to live and breathe in a heavenly world, and yet we also live here on earth. You and I are to see the world with heavenly eyes and the people that we interact with. We're to live with a heavenly focus, but we're not in heaven yet. We still live here on earth. So we must let those heavenly eyes, that heavenly guidance, that heavenly focus and attitude guide all that we do and how we live here on earth. Our spiritual lives are not a separate category, but are to affect everything in practical terms on how we operate on a daily basis. What's required if we're going to hang out between heaven and earth this week? I'm just talking the next seven days. I'm not trying to set you on some new mission for your entire life. Break it down into a manageable chunk. This week, hang out between heaven and earth and see how God can use you. What's that going to take? I want to give you a few things, and then we'll close. The first thing that's going to be involved is prayer. We don't see prayer explicitly from this particular passage, but we know from the fullness of Scripture that any time that folks were going on mission trying to reach people for the Lord, prayer was a huge part of that. This is the hanging out in heaven side of things. Maybe off to the side, if you're taking notes, write write these things down. Here's your prayer for this week. You say, don't tell me what to pray. I'm going to tell you what to pray. Here's your prayer for this week. It's real simple. Stretch me. This is your prayer to the Lord. Stretch me. What do you mean, stretch me? That means get me out of where I'm comfortable. You stretch me, Lord. You put people in my path. You stretch me to where I need to be. Ever prayed that prayer? Uh-uh. No, sir. I'm not so sure about this whole prayer thing. I'm not praying that prayer. Stretch me. Just see what God does. I have no formula, no guarantee of what he's going to say to you, what he's going to do. Stretch me. Grow me. How about that? Lord, if you're going to stretch me, God, you're going to have to grow me. You're going to rip me apart. Grow me. God, increase, increase my spiritual development. Lord, be all over me. This Grow me in a spiritual sense this week. Open my eyes. Stretch me. Grow me. Open my eyes. In our Sunday school class this morning, we had a little discussion just about... Um, relationships and making investments and so on and so forth and building strong relationships and whatever. And one of the the people in our class mentioned that it's amazing how many opportunities the Lord gives you. And and this person was just talking about in, in the home, just with children. And certainly we could all relate that to wherever you are on a regular basis. But how many opportunities there are to make investments for eternity, to take advantage of those teachable moments, to to put Jesus in practical terms for those you're around. Lord, open my eyes. We often go through life, maybe not blinded by anything else, but with our hands over our eyes, either unwilling or unable to see what's really going on. Lord, open my eyes. Stretch me, grow me, open my eyes, and use me. Use me. I don't know where you'll be this week. I don't know who you'll interact with. But if you pray, Lord, use me, I would imagine that God would figure out some way 
to use you with the people you're around. I'm not saying you got to go be the bullhorn guy on the street corner. That's not what I'm talking about. You probably don't want to be that guy anyway. If that's calling, then by all means, grab the bullhorn and go. But what I'm saying is you pray, God, use me. Really, Lord, use me. I humble myself. I pour myself out. God, you use me this week. I guarantee you there will be opportunities. The prayer, Lord, stretch me. Grow me. Open my eyes. Use me. It starts with prayer. Lord, how can you use me this week? It continues with involvement. Here's the hanging out on earth part. You hang out in heaven through prayer. God, I'm focused on you, what you want me to do. And I'm looking for involvement. Mark chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. So many people gathered together that there was no more room. Not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the stretcher on which the paralytic was lying. I wonder how these four men came to be involved in the life of this paralytic. Physically, they had nothing in common with him. This is a man who could not walk, could not do anything for himself, and it's likely during this time that he spent time simply begging for his food and, and his basic necessities. It's likely that was his case. And yet here are four men, perfectly healthy it seems, who are involved in the life of a man who can do nothing for himself. I wonder what their first response to him was. Was it like mine with the lady at Walmart? Or the lady at Kohl's? Was it like yours and mine in those interactions that we have that we kind of back away? I wonder what these four men were like when they first met this paralytic. It's obvious that they became intricately and intimately involved in his life so much that they were willing to do anything above and beyond even what it took to get him to Jesus. For the people around you, you have some options. Your approach to them can be one of retreat. I'll tell you what, in our world today, it sure is tempting to just retreat. It really is. The world seems to just be going on its own path, and certainly it is. Everybody just does what they think is right in their own eyes. That seems to be the case. It's easy just to retreat and say, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I'm going to back away. I see it and I'm recoiling. Or, or you, can, you can simply ignore what's going on. You sort of, the proverbial, put your head in the sand or, or just la, 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 I don't, I don't understand what's going on. I, I, I don't see it. You know, it's the old, if, if I can't see them, they can't see me kind of thing. You can ignore what's going on or... You can engage the people around you. You can get involved. If you consider what Jesus did throughout his life, I want to show you a few verses here that hopefully will either be convicting or inspiring or both. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says it this way, talking about himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 19. Verse 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, has come to seek and save the lost. Romans chapter 5. Verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And in Philippians, Paul writes about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. He says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his, for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Aren't you glad that Jesus got involved in our lives? Aren't you glad that he didn't just see us in our sin and leave us alone to wallow in it? He came from heaven to get involved in our lives. Because we needed him, he moved toward us. Because we have no hope apart from him, he became one of us. Because we're cursed without him, he died in our place. Jesus became involved in our world so that we might live in his involvement is required Jesus as we'll see overcame every barrier every obstacle to reaching people any social barriers any racial barriers gender barriers physical religious all of it he overcame them all to reach people I wonder what you and I can do to become more involved in the lives of the people around us maybe to learn a name or two Maybe to make an appointment to have lunch with someone this week and just say, hey, can, can we just get together? You don't have to tell them that, look, my pastor told me I need to be involved in your life. So I'm, I'm being involved, just following his directions. If he asks me next week, I can be honest and say I did it. That's not what I'm talking about. But just to have lunch with someone. Maybe to have someone over to your house. Say, look, you know, we haven't been together in a while. or you know, I, I'm, I know you're new here, whatever. Let, let's get together. Maybe involvement would require that you just apologize to someone. The power of apology is, is underrated. Maybe this afternoon, if you go out to lunch, you would take the extremely, and I say it not, not tongue-in-cheek, the extremely bold step of asking your server at your restaurant how you can pray for them. You'll shock them. They'll fall on the ground, all right? Then they'll get back up, and they may or may not tell you anything. Now, follow that up with a decent tip, just just. Word of the wise. You can ask how you can pray. That's not the tip. Praying for them is not the tip. But, but I wonder, how could you be more involved in the lives of those that you interact with? Maybe with a coworker. Maybe you'd create and you'd take advantage of a teachable moment with your children or the young people in your life. Look for a way to get involved. There are opportunities all around us. At a time when a family member dies, how can you get involved to help and to be the, the presence of Jesus there? When someone is going through a divorce, instead of retreating and recoiling, how can you lean in and say, let me get involved. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? When disaster strikes and things are all out of order in a particular person's life, how instead of avoiding it and just waiting for the storm to pass, can you go in it with them? The person faces depression. Instead of treating them as if there's something terribly wrong with them that nothing can fix and they just have to sit there in that how can you lean in and help them when someone faces a disease instead of acting hopeless what can you do how can you be involved in the lives of people just like these men who carried the paralytic to Jesus 
The people in your lives, they need someone who will say, I'll pick up the mat for you and I'll help you. I'll carry you where you need to go. So be proactive. Don't wait for someone to come to you. Well, if God throws somebody in my path, I guess I'll do something about it. Be proactive. Don't wait for them to come to you. Be, be accessible, just like Jesus. I love the part where, where they, they tear open the roof and they lower the man down. What does Jesus do? Guys, i got about ten minutes left in the sermon. You can hold on just a second. I'm on the very last point. I'm about to wrap it up, and I wrote a really good conclusion for this sermon. Hold on just a second. Not what he does. That was a joke. That's not what he does. What he does is address the man. He's accessible at any point, at any time. Be intentional, but be patient, of course. You may be really inspired after this sermon to go, I'm going to go reach those people that are in my life, but it's probably not going to happen all at once. Living between heaven and earth requires involvement. It also requires sacrifice. But I'm amazed at what these guys did. I think the crowd is in the way. Here they come walking up with their friend. They're thinking, we're going to get him to Jesus. Jesus is at home. We're going to catch him right there, and, and he's going to be healed. And lo and behold, Jesus is teaching, and the house is full, even the doorway, and it spills out into the courtyard, and they can't get to him. There's no easy way for them to meander their way through. It's not going to happen. They had the belief that Jesus could heal him, that he really needed Jesus, and they were going to stop at nothing, to see this man wind up at the feet of Jesus. That would have been real easy for them to, to look at one another when they get to the crowd and say, we tried. Sorry, man. Take him back to his spot. So we'll pray for you. Good luck. would have been real easy to do that. They could have looked at each other and say, well, maybe some other time. But instead of that, they sacrificed. They sacrificed maybe even their own dignity by climbing on the roof and ripping the, the roof of someone else's home open and lowering this man to Jesus. There was nothing they were going to stop at. They were persistent. They overcame any obstacle. The challenge for us is to sacrifice for those people who desperately need Jesus. Maybe it'll be a sacrifice of time for you. Maybe you'll have to endure a few conversations that you just get really annoyed at. If that's what it takes to be involved in the life of that person. Maybe it'll be a sacrifice of money or of energy or of comfort. If you think about the people who have made the greatest impact in your life, I guarantee you that almost every one of them has made a major sacrifice for you. Your parents, if that's the case. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was someone that just went out of their way. You remember the sacrifice that people made those who make the greatest sacrifices often make the greatest impact. These guys were willing to sacrifice. Hanging out between heaven and earth also requires great faith. Jesus told them, well, actually, he, he, he responded, as he says in verse 5, seeing their faith. <laughs> he saw their faith, this tenacious, tenacious faith that, led them to go through, through so much. Nothing was going to stop them. Their actions revealed their faith. He realized that faith without any actions is dead. If it doesn't inspire you to do something about it, it's dead. They didn't know all that Jesus would do, but they knew this guy had to get to Jesus. 
We've got to have that same kind of faith, believing who Jesus is, believing that people really do need him, that he is their only hope, that we can help them all day long and we'll be good Christian people, but without them getting to Jesus, and they still have nothing. They're still lost. Being used by God requires faith that also will bring opposition. This is the earthly reality of this tension. Some of the scribes were sitting there, verse 6, thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These guys said, what is going on? Who is this guy? They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They were offended at who he claimed to be. They tried to stop who he was about. You and I, if we are to be used by God, will face similar opposition. You may never face real persecution. But internally, as Satan wars against the things of God, and externally, as he uses other circumstances, you will face opposition. I wonder if you'll hang out this week between heaven and earth and say, God, how can you use me? I wonder if you read this story in Mark 2, which character are you most like? Is it the friends who, who you know people need Jesus, that you're going to be involved in the lives, that you'll hang out this week and say, God, how can you use me? You'll pray, Lord, stretch me, grow me, open my eyes, use me. Or maybe you realize you're more like the paralyzed man. You're in need of forgiveness. You're in need of new life. And your prayer would be, I surrender. Lord, save me. Save me from my sin. Forgive me. Heal me. Or maybe if you're honest this morning, you'd find yourself a little more like that opposition to Jesus. Resisting the work of Jesus because it doesn't fit into the box of your religious experience. Because he demands to be in control and there's, there's something about you that just resists that. What's your response today? Maybe it'll be a prayer of repentance and faith. Maybe it'll be a prayer of confession to say, I've just been resisting the work of Jesus in my life. Maybe a prayer of humility, stretch me, grow me, open my eyes and use me. I want to close this morning in a little different way. Instead of us standing and singing together, I want you to listen to a song. Let me give you an idea of what the lyrics are about. The words will not be on the screen, we'll simply listen. Here are the lyrics to this song. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. When will we realize people need the Lord? We're called to take His light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through His love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life that only we can share. People need the Lord. I, I want you, if, if you're comfortable, and you certainly don't have to, but maybe you'd approach the closing of our time in a prayerful way, 
And as you listen to the words of this song, you just allow the Holy Spirit to do in you this morning what He needs to do. Maybe He convicts you today and you confess to Him whatever sin He brings to mind. Maybe you're inspired and you say, Lord, I, I commit. Yes, I will follow you. As you listen to the words of the song, let the Holy Spirit minister to your heart and consider who it is in your life that desperately needs the Lord.